Hi, and welcome to Ampersand. I'm Megan Farnsworth. This month, we talk to undocumented youth in California whose experiences are being turned into art. Borders are only set because people say they're there. We don't have to allow them to limit us. All the limitations are only in the ones we set for ourselves. If you really want to, there's no borders. We also sit down with journalist Charles Blow about building identity and telling your own story. That not wanting anything other than to just be me, is, I think it's just a beautiful, powerful expression of humanity and manhood uh, in particular. But first, we head to Union Station. It's known as a destination for travelers, but it also serves as a venue for musical experimentation. A high-concept opera called Invisible Cities took place there last fall. It's being revived for one night on October 29th. Heather Heiss was at the station last year when it all began. There were a hundred of us wandering around the historic end of Union Station, all wearing headphones, all listening to live music. Commuters rushed from place to place, giving us strange looks. Travelers waited in the big leather chairs and looked bewildered as people in costume filed down the main aisle. The singers dispersed among us. Some sat, some walked out into the courtyard. The musicians were tucked away in a nearby room their instrumental performance transmitted over a wireless signal. It was a live opera in a busy public space, something I had never experienced or even really thought was possible. Composed by Christopher Cerrone and based on the novel by Italo Calvino, Invisible Cities is a fanciful conversation between Marco Polo and Kubla Khan. I sat down with the opera's artistic director, Yuval Cerrone, who challenged me to consider how opera can be for everybody. What if opera is actually an emerging art form? What if it's an art form that is developing and finding its audience and finding new ways of expression? I started the industry with that mission, that idea of, of breaking those boundaries. And the only way to do that really is to bring opera into the public sphere. We wanted to eliminate that gap between everyday life and art making. Opera has a particularly bad rap in this scenario because it's, you know the very first operas were done in private rooms. The Florentine Camerata was all about this private and very privileged room where you were invited in to see this opera if you were a friend of the prince. And so for me, that idea of the kind of elitism, that's something I've really been trying to explode. So take it out of the private realm of these temples of art. Nothing against them. I love them. I love going into theater, you know? <laughs> I don't have anything against the proscenium arc, you know, <laughs> uh, or the traditional theaters. But if we're going to keep the art form alive, I think we have to do the things that keep the artistic excellence high while inviting the public in to mingle with what we're doing. 
I was just really struck from the moment of putting on my headphones mm. and being able to walk through an opera, mm. seeing a dancer in leotard doing something really crazy with her body, but then turning, seeing a singer in jeans wearing a backpack. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so there was a blur between the performer and the audience and then just the people who were at the station to travel. Yeah, absolutely. The first opera we did, Crescent City, was done in a warehouse space with no particularly privileged point of view. In fact, the audience was invited to wander around freely during that performance, or you could have a seat, but no seat was any better or worse than any other. They were at different levels, or uh, they were either inside the installation or outside, but you had a very particular point of view. And I wanted to build on that idea in with Invisible Cities, the idea of an ambulatory audience and experiencing a piece in 360-degree format, uh, being able to look um, in a number of different directions. And and I wanted the audience to feel like that kind of control over the narratives without it being in a cheap way participatory. So with Invisible Cities, I wanted to still have an even more subjective experience, allowing for a highly private experience, but putting that in relief by it being in an incredibly public space allowing them to experience that tension, which we carry with us every day. Um, You know, when we go into public spaces, we're also alone. So reminding people of that and making them aware of um, their subjective experience versus the space where people meet. I turn my gaze aside. I no longer dare look anyone in the face. Los Angeles conducive to this participatory (laughs) opera. I I came to LA four years ago, and sometimes I joke that it still is the Wild West in many ways, but it's not a total joke because there is still this love of the undiscovered and uh, the new and innovation. This is a city that I think really prizes innovation. That's something I've always really noticed about LA. And so when I started the industry, it was kind of taking a chance on that and thinking, well, I think this is the right place to do these kind of experiments. You can find the right collaborators who will want to take a leap with you. And the audiences have definitely been coming out to the projects that we've been doing and a very diverse and very uh, different kind of audience that you'd expect at, a, at, at something that's called an opera. In L.A., we are often cut off from an, an unexpected audience. When I go to L.A. Phil, I know who I'm going to see. You know, when I go to the opera, I know who I'm going to see. If I go to a dance performance that's a little grungier, I know what kind of artists are going to be there. I know who's going to be in the audience, right? And suddenly we were invited to a performance that we were mixed with a bunch of people that we might not normally even know live in Los Angeles. So I'm curious with putting everyone on the same level, if anything really surprised you. Wow. I mean, when you open your work up to the public, you're opening yourself up to a very unpredictable range of responses, right? And we had incredibly beautiful ones like somebody who they didn't feel like they had anywhere else to go. They went to Union Station and suddenly next to them, someone started singing. And they had no idea why. And she burst out into tears and said she felt like it was this voice from above that was telling her it's going to be okay. was definitely not any of our intentions you know <laughs> to, I mean it's lovely when you can say like it was the work that we did that that 
could inspire people to remember why they life is worth living you know that's that is why we look to art but we didn't do it specifically to it's not a rescue mission for us either you know i mean it is it was fundamentally an art piece but we opened it up to allow for those kind of things to happen. Uh, the whole idea of simultaneity is yeah. happening. It mm -hmm. seems very resistant to the idea of an auteur. Yeah. Right. Like no one is really in charge here. <laughs> it's, it's very non-Wagnerian. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's nice to hear because, you know, a lot of people introduce me to people as an impresario, which is a title that for me always has these very negative connotations of a domineering uh, auteur with big ideas that everyone needs to fall in line with. And that's definitely not the way that I work. I don't see that value. I mean, I'm interested in other people's ideas, including the audience. That's why I like these projects that are so open to the audience's interpretation. So we have one chance to see Invisible Cities again. Exactly. Wednesday, October 29th, free, open to the public, a concert of just the music. Fortunately or unfortunately, no headphones. I think fortunately, because it'll be the first time anyone will have heard the music without this mediated experience. And so in this configuration, we'll see the musicians yes. and the singers yes. all at once. They'll be together in the same room. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely still a first, you know. And there's a great quote that I've always been inspired by by the director, Vilan Wagner, who says that every production is uh, a journey to an unknown destination. And I feel like that is definitely the case of the work that I've been doing with the industry is it is very much an unknown destination, but we just keep walking towards it. As we get closer and closer, it becomes more and more real and more and more vivid. And it's a really exciting process. You can see Invisible Cities back at Union Station on October 29th. A CD recording of the opera will be out November 4th. Telling your own story is difficult. It's something that New York Times columnist Charles Blow knows. He released a deeply personal memoir in September. It inspired Ampersand's Maya Williams to explore her own history. Growing up in North Little Rock, Arkansas, I'd spend summer evenings with my grandfather on his rickety back porch. I'd sit on his lap and he'd tell me tall tales. I was convinced he could be nothing less than Superman. Sometimes he'd tell me stories of how he wrestled boa constrictors in the canopied jungles of Sierra Leone. Other times he'd tell me about how his all-black regiment had to dig their own recreational swimming pool at camp during World War II. His story slid on a scale from magic realism to harsh reality, but I was always transfixed. Around the time I turned seven, my mother started writing a book about her life. She grew up during the 50s and 60s in Arkansas, was one of four black students to integrate an all-white middle school, and became an executive at a bank all before she turned 30. I remember the book was called Colored Girls and Angels. The opening lines were from the Bible, they told me to be careful to entertain strangers, for some have entertained angels unaware. In my exploration of racial identity and storytelling, I read a memoir by New York Times op-ed columnist Charles M. Blow called Fire Shut Up in My Bones. In the first few chapters, I learned that he too spent his childhood in Arkansas with his grandparents. I felt an immediate kinship with his love and admiration for his grandfather, Jed, the man he would learn to model himself after. The memoir is a collection of the stories that shaped him. He captures memories vividly, his experiences of isolation, moderate poverty, prejudice, and abuse. I sat down with him at USC's Doheny Library, and we talked about what it's like to look back now, 
with years of life in perspective. It's hard to overstate how isolated we were in this little town. But I do go back to my hometown, and I just am able to relax there and remember what it feels like to be in a happy place. Although, you know, people read the book and they don't think it's a happy place, but I, there are parts of it that is, I think, absolutely beautiful and, and happy for me. And, and it's not complicated. It's just trees and breezes through leaves and water rippling through brooks. And back then I thought it was a prison. Now I think it's absolutely beautiful. You also talked about when you decided you wanted to be a politician and you met the governor of Louisiana. And you talked about kind of molding together these two heroes of Martin Luther King and Prince Charles to be this sort of outward persona or performance. When did you shed that? I don't know if it, uh, I shed it and left it behind. And, and always, people say those are two strange characters to try to put together. But what I was trying to do is to try to construct some level of poise and sophistication for myself. And I just, I didn't have any examples nearby. And uh, Martin Luther King was, as a kid growing up at that time, I mean, literally every black history month, you had to remember a poem. And there was just an incredible poise to the man, as I recalled it, and, and an eloquence. And one thing that people don't make enough of, I think, is that he was incredibly well educated incredibly well well read and a beautiful writer in addition to being a, a, a great orator. And about the same time, you know, Prince Charles marries Diana. I never thought about Prince Charles. And all of a sudden, they're all over the television. You can't get away from these people. And I thought, oh, a prince, his name's Charles. And that, I, that's the only thing I thought. Like, so I thought I could be, if I comport myself the way this guy does, what's the difference? And so I would just watch. And there's still a part of me that sits up straight. The last couple pages of the book, the final chapter, it feels like this sort of triumphant self-realization where you've reconciled all these things you've been toiling with. You bring up Jed again, and you say that about what he possessed was not the quality of running like a river, but an ocean that just is where it always meant to be. That is, you know, what I aspire to be. You know, I aspire to feel like I can just be me in the space where I am and experience the depth of that and the peace of it. That not wanting anything other than to just be me is, I think it's just a beautiful, powerful expression of humanity and manhood uh, in particular. It's not a journey that you come to the, the stop of, that it's something you just pursue your whole life? I think you may stop running, but I think the depth increases, if that makes any sense, that you, that you grow not up but down into yourself, that you, that, that you become deeper in your understanding of who you are and what the world is and in your fragility and your fallibility. I think it was Oscar Wilde that said, I'm not... Uh, young enough to know everything, which I think is brilliant because the older you get, the more you realize you don't know. And that, in a way, that becomes a comfort that, that you're not trying to be the end-all, be-all. I'm a grown-up now, but Charles Blow's idea of growing down, not up, digging deeper into your history to define a sense of self is, for me, the most striking part of our conversation. 
I come from a family of storytellers and carry with me the sum of all the tales I've been told. My mother, the colored girl who entertained angels. My grandfather, the man who found solace in tall tales. Charles Blow's memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, is available now. Last, we take you behind the scenes of a touring musical play that hits L.A. on October 16th. It's called Dreaming Sin Fronteras, or Dreaming Without Borders, and it tells the true stories of undocumented youth fighting to make their dreams come true. Its songs are scored by big names in music, members of Ozo Motley, Devochka, Flowbots, and Ceci Bastida. Daniel Charbonneau has more. There are about 5 million children and young adults living in the U.S. that are undocumented. Over a million of them live in California. They've grown up in the U.S. and they consider themselves American, but legally, they're not considered Americans. They're full of aspirations and hopes, but without documentation, they face obstacles. This is why they're called the Dreamers. These young people were the inspiration for Antonio Mercado, the director of Dreaming Sin Fronteras. He's had a personal connection to immigration since he was young. I'm the child of an immigrant who crossed illegally from Mexico, who married my mother, who is from New Mexico. However, they divorced. My mom raised me on her own and didn't have a relationship with my father growing up. But with this project specifically, ostensibly it is an attempt to understand my father's experience and what it was like for him to make that choice to leave his home and search for a better life. About 10 years ago, Mercado became a high school teacher in Denver. The school was over 90% Latino. Many of his students were undocumented. I saw myself in a lot of these kids with so many hopes and dreams and, and just blew me away that for these kids who had better grades, who were smarter, who were more talented than I was at their age, were struggling. Many of them wanted to go on and build and be a part of the fabric of this great country, yet are denied those opportunities. One story that's featured in Dreaming Sin Fronteras is Carla's. I'm Carla Martinez, I'm 21 years old, and I was undocumented. I've been here since I was little, and I never really put much thought into me being undocumented because I wasn't really aware of it. It wasn't until I um, graduated high school that I was going on to college, and I realized I couldn't just go into college because I didn't have the correct documentation, and I couldn't get jobs that I was being offered because I didn't have a Social Security number. There's so many things that I can't do. Even my own family was telling me, you can't go to college. You can't go to college, just start working at a factory or at a restaurant or do something because you can't go to college. Despite all the obstacles and all the no's that I encountered, I worked hard for it. And I said, if I have to start at the bottom, then I will. As an undocumented and the first in my family to go to college, that was a great success. Now the next concern was paying for it. I had to do a lot of research and contact a lot of people and say, you know, how did you do it? I had to find other people that had been undocumented and that also got through college. Or I had to find private scholarships from people that were willing to help out for me to continue my education. My point here is if you get a hundred no's, even if thousands of people tell you you can't, everyone, even your own family is telling you you can't do it, you have to find a way if you really want to. There's no borders. 
all the limitations are only in the ones we set for ourselves. My story will be featured on Dreaming Sin Fronteras because I was able to break those barriers. I didn't allow the borders to stop me from accomplishing my goals. Carla's story and others like it inspired Maria. She's a USC student who auditioned for Dreaming Sin Fronteras even though she had never acted before. It's something very close to my heart, which is why I, I really wanted to audition even if you know, it was kind of a long shot for me because I'm not an actress, I'm a dancer. But I ended up getting casted and I'm really excited to be a part of the show. I lived in Tijuana for five years and then I moved to Chula Vista when I started kindergarten. My mom really wanted me to start going to school in the United States, so she ended up buying a house on the other side of the border. I had a lot of friends who went to school with me who were undocumented. I think the hardest part for me was seeing some of them being split from their family. So for example, one of my guy friends hadn't seen his sister, who was just six miles away on the other side, but he hadn't seen her in about 10 years. My cousin hasn't seen her mom in 18 years now. She's constantly living in fear because you never know when the Border Patrol will come roaming around. I mean, they come to shopping malls, they come to restaurants randomly, and it's always been something that I've been conscious of. If you don't live on the border, it's easy to feel disconnected from the issue. Mercado hopes Dreaming Sin Fronteras will change that. You, know, you read about these stories, and whether online or in the paper, and it just, just seems so foreign. It doesn't sink in on a gut or emotional level. I'm a firm believer that music brings people together. Here's Raul Pacheco and Ceci Bastida, who wrote music for Dreaming Sin Fronteras. I am on this project as a producer and songwriter and having a great time doing it. Being from Tijuana and talking about immigration issues since, you know, since my first band a long time ago, it made sense to me to be a part of it. Basically, I just started writing some songs with them. For us, the issue of immigration, for me, the issue of immigration is one of human survival. The idea of these countries is very unnatural to me. Immigration has been a thing that happens since the beginning of time. These borders that we put up don't always serve humans. It's so powerful to hear uh, people's experiences, and I think that's the way to, to have people understand this issue and, and see it as a human issue. People who, who leave their country, who try to you know, make a life for themselves in a different country, especially when it's a different culture, they're heroes to me because I can't imagine doing that. Leaving your life, leaving your family, giving it all up to try something new in a different place with a different language, with a different culture, with tremendous obstacles. And I think these people are extremely brave.
One of the things too I always find when we're talking about immigration, I see it in our own project, is like the the joy that people feel about just being alive and being human and surviving and thriving, going through maybe something hard and then, you know, reaching a place of beauty or learning from all that. And I think that sometimes immigration can be so heavy in, in terms of what mm-hmm. and how we discuss it. I mean, we're all just here trying to do the best we can, and some of us are in much more difficult situations. But what I find is that there's a way to connect with joy, and for me, music has always been that. Dreaming Sin Fronteras is a Visions and Voices production. You can see it at USC's Bovard Auditorium on October 16th at 7.30 p.m. That's it for this month's Ampersand. I'm Megan Farnsworth.